I'm Lane. And I'm Sharis. We are two certified clinicians who are obsessed with neuroscience and learning all the secrets behind the power of our brains. From empathy to racism, sickness, time, and much more, we're here to talk about why our brains do the things they do and how to use our minds to become happier and healthier people through the power of knowing more. While it's easy to get lost in the science, we'll do our best to make these topics easy to digest so that you can better understand your brain and no longer be controlled by its functions. The more we understand about our brain, the more control we get over how we think and feel, and thus, the more we empower ourselves to live the lives we want and positively impact others. This is the Brain Blown Podcast. We are currently recording this in the very beginning of 2022. In the last two years, our world has been in the middle of a pandemic. We've seen a great deal of turmoil in regards to things coming to heads, an increased amount of violence, an increased amount of violence specifically against people of color. We're living in a very different world in the last two years than we did 10 years ago, than we did five years ago. It brought some things to question for me personally, I've noticed within about the last six years or so that I'm seeing a real inability for us to connect as a society. Uh, We're seeing a a divided world, especially in America, where we're seeing we've always we've always had more than one political party, for example. But now we have two political parties who won't even talk to each other. And I've noticed conversations in the last six years more and more uh, coming back to if we could just meet across party lines, if we could connect to each other as people. And one of the things that really stuck out to me is why is all of this changing? For me personally, one of the things that I have noticed, interestingly enough, in the last two years, as somebody who sort of always had way too much of an ease of connection to other people, almost way too much empathy, and I get critiques for that, that I've started to lose a lot of my empathy. And I've started to see a lot of loss of empathy of those around me, even from very naturally empathetic people. And it made me question why. Hmm. So not to take us too serious so quickly in the beginning, but it brought up the question of how do we look at this on a scientific level? What are we really dealing with and what is really affecting us? Why are we changing so much as a society in the last six years, in the last two years? What is occurring and why, what does this all matter and what does this mean for our future, both individually as well as country-wise as well as globally? So this episode is empathy, the neuroscience behind it. I am so interested. I've always been so curious as to whether, whether or not empathy was a choice, because as an empathetic person, it's, it feels like it's my nature to empathize that it's not something that I can even control. I just naturally do it. And then I'll I'll go around and just experience other people in the world who aren't empathetic the way I am and I'm like why? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Why why do we experience different levels of empathy? Why are we different? Why are we similar? And I think a lot of us think it's very individual personalized choice or maybe just how we were raised and that's all true but there's also as we are talking more and more about it is not just about what we see and feel and experience but what's the science behind all of that so our focus for this episode is talking about empathy so let's start off with defining it um, because it's good that we agree on what the definition is so i'm also going to really root us into the difference between empathy and sympathy because in, in definition because a lot of the times those get used interchangeably so empathy comes from the german word which means feeling into 
whereas sympathy comes from the Greek word means feeling with. It's a very fine difference, but it is very important. Empathy is about feeling somebody's pain instead of feeling sorry for them. That means that this creates vulnerability, whereas sympathy does not. Uh, To quote Brene Brown, words don't make us feel better. Connection does. So even though it creates vulnerability, it is also the thing that is more going to soothe in a way that sympathy cannot. So what does that all mean on a neuroscience level? Why do we engage in sympathy or empathy? So on a neuroscience level, it turns out that this is not an easy thing to explain and is really multifaceted. (laughs) (sighs) So much more in-depth research than I thought I was going to be doing when I suggested this topic. When we're talking on a neuroscience level, we're talking about chemicals in our brain such as oxytocin, dopamine, We're talking also about specific neurons, such as mirroring neurons, which we'll get to. The ability that we develop over time of our own personal evolution to do perspective taking, something we call theory of mind, which is understanding through our development as a person that what I think or feel is different than what you think or feel. So empathy is is not an easy thing to define on a neuroscience level because, as we'll discuss, it comes about throughout the course of our lives and we learn the ability to do empathy differently the older and more developed that we get and we will also potentially lose the ability to do empathy based on important factors which we'll cover all right sounds like this is going to be a wonderful first test episode in making really complicated stuff easier to grasp at least hopefully you know we'll we'll absolutely do our best (laughs) for that one today and I know you had also mentioned that in doing the research for this episode that there might be quite a lot and we may end up breaking it up into two episodes yeah we're I want to try to not do that a lot in the future and for as simple as a topic as I thought this was there's so much more here so it might be that way cool Sounds good. So to talk about empathy, we have to talk about why we have empathy. Why is this a thing that exists for humans? We have to talk about the evolution of our species and the development and evolution of us on an individual level. And then we can get more into what does this look like on an individual level? Why should we care? And what, if anything, do we need to do about it? So let's start off with the very beginning evolution. Why do we have empathy in the first place? Honestly, we had to. So if we go back and really study evolution, and before we get too far in depth, and I'll try to mention this if we do two episodes, a lot of this is specifically coming from three-sided sources. Talking about evolution comes specifically from a book called Sapiens by Yuval Noah Harini. I'm going to say right away that uh, the difference between citing myself on paper versus citing myself verbally means that I have to try to pronounce people's names. Unfortunately, in a lot of cases, I've never heard these names. So I apologize preemptively if I slaughter any of these great, intelligent, wonderful people uh, because I don't don't know how to pronounce their names, but I'm going to do my best. Of course. It also comes from a book by Robert M. Spilowski called Behave. And also a book, Born for Love, by Maya Solovitz and Bruce D. Perry. So why do we have empathy largely stems for what we look like as human beings now versus what we used to look like as human beings. In the very beginning of our evolution, a key factor is that our brains were not as large. Yeah, we had talked about like, we had mentioned 
caveman times a little bit, mm-hmm. I think, in our first episode. And I'm thinking about it, too. When you think about, like, caveman times and you imagine it, you don't really think about empathy at all. It's all about finding food, finding water, finding shelter, killing to survive, and maybe, like, finding someone to procreate with. Mm-hmm. And especially if we go real back in our evolutionary history, if you think about it, we're very, very different than other mammals. Specifically, one of the things that makes us very, very different is we have significantly larger brains. It is one of the major things that sets us actually apart from most other animals. And that sounds like, well, of course we'd evolve to have larger brains. Like, we see the benefits of, like, space travel and the internet um, and what we've created with these large brains. It seems like, to quote Harini, a no-brainer. But... uh, the reality is one of the reasons that most mammals don't have as larger brains is because they're a lot of work. They're really heavy, so they're hard to carry, and they're also hard to fuel. So I'm also going to quote Harini here, 2 to 3% of total body weight consumes 25% of body energy. That's our brain. And that's specifically when our body's at rest. Holy smokes. Yeah, 20, 25%. <laughs> of, your, of your energy. Of your energy. Literally goes to powering your brain. Yes. Okay. So in contrast, apes, it's about 8% of energy. Oh, wow. So we're talking about something that really requires a lot of fuel, which means as a society, we had to spend, uh, as, a, as a group of people, we had to spend so much more time looking for food. And it also, because we wanted bigger brains and our brains require so much more energy, it actually meant that the rest of our muscles are atrophied because of that. We put more of a focus on our brains, which means the rest of our muscles don't get the focus on the need for that kind of fuel. So we ended up being weaker and slower, which, you know, when you're dealing with saber-toothed tigers is probably a problem, right? Mm. Uh, Especially when you have to go about all the time finding food that puts you at risk of being around other creatures that could potentially kill you that also want your food. So the reality is we're just not as strong as other animals. And that's a very big risk factor. We also decided to walk upright. We discovered a great benefit of these large brains was that we could invent more detailed tools. But to do more detailed kind of tools, we needed a better fine motor control. So our evolution started to gravitate us towards the ability to do far more intricate movement with our hands than other mammals, even our closely related uh, relatives, apes, monkeys, other mammals have because we learned our brains could make more complex tools, but we needed the hand ability to use that. Walking upright is actually very, very hard on a body system, which is why basically nobody else really does it, right? Mm. It meant that we had a lot of pressure on our spine. When we did this, it did things specifically in wanting to focus on walking upright, like it shortened our intestinal tract. And it made the birth canal much, much smaller. Oh, goodness. And not only do we have a small birth canal, we have babies who, uh, thanks evolution, are wanting bigger and bigger brains. Have giant heads. (laughs) Oh, no. (laughs) Yep. Um, So clearly a period in our evolution, uh, birth became real serious. Wow. Because it, it just 
literally made so that we were trying to have big babies with small spaces and there was a lot of death. And so death in childbirth was absolutely a significant factor during the course of our evolution. So because of that, natural selection made it so that babies who were born earlier had a better chance of surviving, both because the mom had a better chance of surviving as did the baby. So essentially, process of that evolution is that our babies are really essentially, in comparison to other mammals, born incredibly prematurely. If you think about, if you think about how other animals are when they're born, other babies are able to do things within a matter of days, weeks, or at least months slash years. And it takes us a very long time before we can be independent of a parental figure. Wow. Uh, The first thing that comes to mind is giraffes. Like Mm -hmm. giraffes birth, or even just horses, they will Mm -hmm. birth their babies and like within hours, they're standing. They're up and running. Mm Mm-hmm. Even kittens who like have a little bit longer. If you think about a six-month-old kitten, an eight-week-old kitten can be without its parent. Can you imagine humans being away from their parents at eight weeks? Oh my gosh. No. So that's a real key factor. And you'd be like, okay, what what does that mean, right? And what this means is, so you have a mother who has a very, very, very premature baby and a constant need to supply herself and her baby with food. But you have a very, very, very dependent baby. How do you do that? How do you fight off predators who are bigger, stronger, and faster than you are? Well, you have an incredibly dependent baby and a constant need to find food. Oh, it's mom power. <laughs> I get it now. Oh my gosh. There is a lot about mom power that we're going to be discussing because that's just a reality. But it is actually also a little bit baby power. Ooh. One of the things that we did as people, as as our society evolved was that our babies had to become more attuned and I don't know, forgive me for saying this, cuter? Because to evolve as a species, A, before you put babies into the equation, just to evolve as a species who wanted bigger brains and essentially smaller intestines so we could walk upright, we had to work in groups. We had to work in groups because groups are the only way we defeat something larger, bigger, stronger, and faster than us like a saber-toothed tiger, right? We had to become a, a tribe, a group of people, or we don't survive in the wild. And more so than that, we also had to become a tribe actually focused on child rearing. Because you have a mom that's essentially out of commission if her entire focus for years is taking care of a child, right? Mm. You have a mom who can't supply herself or her food with babies. We die out as a species. Full stop. So... To not die out as a species, we had to become a collective. We had to become a group of people. And we had to become a collective focused around childcare. So we needed adults to connect uh, with babies who weren't their own. So hence, evolution made for cuter babies. Because we needed, uh, it's more than that. There's, there's more than that. But this is where empathy first starts to come from. Wow. Empathy is literally, when we think about Darwinism, right? Darwinism is about survival of the fittest. It is more than just that because it's survival of the fittest of our genes and the procreation of our species. And when you first think about it, empathy would go against survival of the fittest. Why would I care about you? Caring about you won't help me survive. If you're a human, it does. Because we survive in groups. We thrive in groups. Without empathy, we don't have the capacity to do that. And although that was true throughout the course of our evolution, it is actually also very true throughout the course of our present and our future. 
So we go back to, right, the evolution of babies becoming cute, essentially, (laughs) is the reality is, is that raising children requires constant help from other family members and neighbors. Again, I'm quoting Harini here. It takes a tribe to raise a human. Babies also not only require a whole tribe to raise, but in addition to that, are by nature hard. Talk to any brand new parent. (laughs) You don't even have to ask them. (laughs) Most of the time you're already seeing just sleep deprivation and sheer exhaustion, right? Babies are by nature hard. So we had to evolve in a way to like taking care of them or we die off as a species. If you have a bunch of babies that are absolutely dependent on humans and you don't want to take care of them, you pop them out and you walk away, right? We had to evolve something that gave us a connection to that child to make it not just about survival of the species, but worth the many years of helping to grow and develop this other human. By nature, all organisms experience some level of distress when we don't have the things we need, food and water, right? And a serious imbalance to the access to this will cause natural amounts of stress. Makes sense. This is true for all organisms. Uh, hence, hanger. Exactly. Angry when, you, when you're too hungry. Yeah. Yes. As, as all living creatures, all living creatures, we are all motivated to, I need this thing to continue surviving. Without this thing, I have distress. With something like an infant that is completely dependent on another, our brains needed to evolve in a way that this elevating of distress was beneficial not only for our own distress, but for the elevating the distress of others. This is a key component of where we start to get empathy and why empathy matters in the first place. Because... We needed a way not only for babies to be cute, that's great and all, but at three o'clock in the morning, nothing is cute in my opinion. So we need more than just that. And so what we did as humans was essentially to evolve in a way that relieving a baby's hunger will relieve the baby's stress, but relieving the baby's stress relieves mom's distress. Wow, yes. And this is where we see the evolution of the beginning components of empathy. And this isn't just true for mom, this is also true for other humans to greater or lesser degree. Sure. That makes a lot of sense. We all get upset when there's a crying baby on the plane. Mm -hmm. And when the baby stops crying, we all feel a sense of relief. Exactly. What we also gain is even if it is a strange baby, if you are the one, we get a a sense of relief of like babies no longer crying, right? But even if it's a strange baby, you have the ability to pick up said baby, feed said baby, and get an absolute dopamine boost from that baby being happy. Whoa. Whoa. Like you will be actually uh, potentially happier than if you would have just relieved your own hunger because this all combines to evolution. This is why we're willing to feed children even when we're hungry. Oh my gosh, I'm freaking out. (laughs) This is crazy. Wow. Oh my gosh. Like going back to baby power. That's literally, yeah. It's literally it. Holy smokes. Baby's reward originally comes from its relief, but its mother's also comes from relieving the baby. And this evolution is absolutely critical to reward and stress connection. Empathy matters because literally without it, we would be extinct. So that's our human evolution. Now let's talk about how we get evolution as people, right? Sure. So we don't, we don't get this immediately from the very beginning. As we develop, we gain more and more empathy. So for example, when, but when we are born, even at the very beginning moments, we do actually have some empathy. So not only will mom feel happier when baby is happier, but the reverse is also true. Oh, hence them like responding to your stress, like almost feeling 
They like do. the the mother, the parent, the the adults' energy. Yes, babies evolve in such a way that they are more likely to be successful and survive if they are better able to replicate what adults feel around them and be conscious of that so that they can get their needs met. Sounds really crazy, but it is actually true. More attuned babies who are like consciously aware of essentially reciprocating get needs met, so we start to learn that this reciprocation has value. Mm. So essentially for an infant, the beginnings of empathy is mom is sad, so I am sad. This is also true for babies in a nursery. They have difficulty depicting one pain from their own. So if one baby cries in a nursery, they all do. This is largely in response to mirroring neurons, which we'll discuss further, but it is a thing all of us have to more or greater degree. But when we're infants, we have a greater amount of mirroring neurons because the rest of our brain is still developing, which is one of the reasons why it's hypothesized that babies feel somebody else's pain as their own. Very interesting. Uh, the other is that we haven't developed enough to realize that it's separate. So that's where we start a little bit coming into toddler. A toddler will start to realize that not only does your pain make the toddler feel pain, but that the toddler has some ability to soothe said pain. This is where this very beginning piece comes in. So uh, a toddler, if you are upset, for example, might hand you their pacifier. Ooh, okay, I see that. Wow. They're starting to mimic that um, piece of empathy and recognize that when you feel happy, I feel happy. So I need to make you feel happy because toddlers are still in the beginning stages of I can't fully differentiate between yours and my own. So I will soothe you the way that I am soothed. (laughs) And as we get further along into childhood, we start to progress from feeling someone else's pain because you're feeling it as though you are them to starting to realize that we have different thoughts, feelings, and knowledge from each other. We start to develop what's called theory of mind. So children start to realize that because I know something, it doesn't mean that you know something. Because I feel something, it doesn't mean you feel something. You will absolutely be able to understand when a child has started to develop this when your child starts to lie. Before that age, they're incapable of it because we haven't developed theory of mind. So why would I lie if I assume you know everything I, that I, you know everything I do, right? Mm-hmm. When we start to explore that, children will start to test it. Very interesting. This also gives us starting the ability to do perspective taking and gives us the ability to understand that comes from a study by Gene Decity. This is a more concrete area region of the brain. I'm going to give a little bit of the science behind this. So this is the pre-aqueductal gray, the integrated behavioral response, and sensory motor areas. Those are the Google Earth areas of our brain that are starting to function with the development of empathy. Ooh, okay. Um, I'm a visual person. So can you give me, um, like, going back to Google Earth, where that is happening. Is this all prefrontal cortex, like northern hemisphere kind of stuff? We are starting to get pieces of that. And specifically into adolescence, we start to get more of it when we get into the areas of the limbic system. We have empathy without involving as much of the prefrontal cortex, which makes sense because for children, that's not as well developed. Sure. It's more in that middle-ish brain region. And then as we start to develop further, it starts to move more into our prefrontal cortex. And it requires our prefrontal cortex to have theory of mind. That's when we start to see that develop. Very interesting. Okay, thank you. Because that's what helps us with the cognitive piece of you feel differently than I do. Yes, makes sense. So with adolescence, we start to see an increasing development in that prefrontal cortex. And this is also, uh, interestingly enough, since you're a visual person, near our corpus callosum. Um, So if you kind of put your two hands together, like put two fists together, I should say, 
two fists together. Oh, yeah. Um, this is where we start to see kind of where your thumbs are touching um, is where your brains connect. And that would be your corpus callosum. Ooh, wild. Okay. Um, so if we think of your fist right now being all of your prefrontal cortex, if you loop your, your fist kind of over where your thumbs are bent in, um, your bent in thumbs are going to be more of your amygdala region. So the further down piece, so I'm pointing right about now to my forehead or eyes, that's, and actually it's probably deeper. It's probably down past, more past my nose, but I can't point there. Um, <laughs> can't point deep into my skull. It's more of the front part of that prefrontal cortex. And it's so far front that it's near the amygdala and the hippocampus. Ooh. As well as our limbic system, which is key for regulatory. So this is where this all starts to originate. And empathy then starts to shift from a concrete world of your finger hurts, so my finger must hurt, and moves into oh, your finger hurts and it must really hurt for you and the empathy of knowing that that pain is different but still feeling connected to you and it's not fair that your finger has to hurt. As we develop too, we change. Younger child's empathy really doesn't distinguish between intentional or unintentional harm yet. The very beginnings of it, we just see harm as harm. Okay. Um, And very young children don't always differentiate between harm to an object versus harm to a person. Oh, very interesting. It's just all harm. Wow. So hurting Dolly is the same as hurting sibling according to research yes wow interesting and and for young children really young children the same as hurting me (gasps) wow so with age and development as i mentioned this starts to activate the amygdala and the insula which is why we start to get anger and disgust to those who cause pain we are not just necessarily focused completely on i need to give you a pacifier so you're soothed but also we're angry at the person who made you cry Ooh. And we start to get the realization of that was not okay. Wow. So that's our own personal development. Um, this happens around the age of 10 to 12, according to Spolowski. And around age 10 to 12, we also start to be able to generalize empathy to groups of people as opposed to just an individual person. Interesting. At six, we can recognize injustice. At eight, we'll start to feel upset with those experiencing injustice. So that is our own development and continues to develop throughout the course of our life. That being said, when we talk about development, we're talking in a generalized setting. There is a real reality to how we develop as humans being about the right information at the right time. Mm. The right stimuli causes a quote-unquote normal trajectory of development, and without that, we lessen that. A lot of our brain really does boil down to the right stimuli at the right time produces these stages that I'm giving you. If we interrupt that, we interrupt what we see in somebody. It is not a guarantee by any stretch of the imagination. Mm. Also within evolution and why we have the right stimuli at the right time, including things like language, verbal or sign language, right? How did we develop those languages? How? Most mammals don't have them. Most mammals don't have the ability to have the kind of complex language that we have. How did we get there? The theory behind that is what we still do at this day, which is called aping. Aping is the ability to copy one another to the capacity to reflect back what you're giving me. It sounds super easy. Small children do this all the time, right? This is actually, at the rate of which we do it, is incredibly finite and way more difficult than you'd think. Which is why other mammals minus, I think, just gorillas don't have the ability to do sign language because they don't have the ability to ape as well as we do. Very interesting. So this, when you're talking about aping, it's, I'm imagining like, like a a young baby in the high chair asking for milk and does the hand sign language for it. 
But beyond oh. that, before that, we're also talking about a baby who sucks its thumb because oh, it's similar to mother putting breast to child. Oh, so interesting. So we're talking about really, really finute structures. This is how language develops is if I point to something and I call it rock and you repeat rock, we start to connect that we now mean that thing I'm pointing to is a rock. Right. That is aping. So this is how we created language and the ability to connect and communicate with each other. And that being said, it's evolved to a level within us that we actually still do it all the time. And it is something in which that helps us connect to one another because of evolution. So a study, I'm gonna do my best, uh, Rizzolati and Singanglia confirm that the imitation and the ability to imitate others, we prefer people who can imitate us, who will imitate our body language. This comes from a study on Capuchin monkeys, but is also proven in humans that we want to do and be around those who mimic us. Because this is going to get into our next step, which is thinking about us not as an individual, but as a tribe. If you mimic me closer, there's a stronger likelihood that you are a part of my tribe and therefore you are safe. Holy smokes. So this is why they'll tell you if you want to like do really well on a date, mimic the person who you're dating. (laughs) If you want to do really well at an interview, mimic the person who's interviewing you. Yes. Copy their energy. Copy their energy, movement, voice level, whatever you can without it being too, I mean, too much and it starts to become uncomfortable, right? I know that. But doing a a very limited amount, maybe the pressure of your speech or the way your eye contact is, etc. will start to feel more and more comfortable around you because we're starting to see you as a member of my people. Wow. Oh my gosh. We have literally hit so much. I've forgotten to recap throughout (laughs) of this. I've just been falling into it all. So thinking back, we literally, so understanding empathy, we obviously had to go back to evolution because we weren't. We did not come with empathy. Like it had to evolve with us. And so that was the first step. And then we also talked about how it actually grows in us as we grow as humans. And that was, I was just so sucked into that. That was crazy. (laughs) And so now you're telling me where we're at now. This is the, like the crucial point where empathy has such a huge role in why we create groups and communities so like why we choose our friends and yes like why we choose to work at certain places and surround ourselves with certain people and even even affiliate to different political parties absolutely what according to one other podcast that i was lucky enough to listen to which is an amazing podcast that i do recommend called hidden brain which is an npr podcast will also can affect the shoes we wear empathy affects the shoes you wear <laughs> well empathy creates the need for community and to know are you with me or against me and there is a whole story um feel free to check out hidden brain about it but to summarize very quickly there are two brothers who got into an argument they were both cobblers um they then split because of a miscommunication to the point where the entire town i believe was called like the bent neck town because they would check to see what kind of shoes you were wearing and they very much started to polarize with are you with me or are you against me those two brothers that sounds like very small and not a big deal those two brothers would be adidas and puma to this day a lot of people are very like i wear only wear adidas or i only wear puma mm-hmm, that's where that all originates from Holy is smokes. our need for community 
Mm-hmm. Oh, this is wild. This is so, so cool. down to the clothes you wear, and marketing does a really good job of that. Yeah, is yeah. you're you're a part of the in crowd. You're a part of the desirable group of people. If you wear certain things, if you buy certain things, that is all playing on our basic evolution, which is that we do feel a need to be included. We are as much as we would like to believe we are independent. The real reality is we would not be here as a species if we were not dependent on one another. And if we hadn't learned how to be dependent on one another, we need each other and we will gravitate towards groups because of this. This now creates a need in a day-to-day basis to the point where it's how we regulate, it's how we're healthier, is being with one another. So literally we understand ourselves through others we regulate through others we connect through others this is true as children but it is still true as adults to this day if you are in a severe amount of pain somebody else's touch can decrease the amount of pain you feel we are very dependent on one another i am seeing the covid19 pandemic in such a new light right now because of what you just said the distance that we had to have with people The inability to be with family when they're sick or ill or suffering. The inability to relieve their stress and how much that increases our stress to the point where we're experiencing something called empathy burnout. Because we have to. We have empathy, but we can take it too far to where we can no longer focus on it. Mm. And we'll delve deeper into that because that's a very significant piece. Mm, Okay. But let's go first back to like what we do in terms of groups. Reality is... We are so dependent on each other. It, it's just a, it's, it's a scientific fact that the absence of close human connection will impact our overall health. It can impact our ability to survive to the point where there's been a ton of studies on people being in solitary confinement. And now that's literally one of the worst things that we can do because long-term isolation will do things not only to affect your increased amount of depression or honestly make you psychotic, but it will also lower your immunity. It will increase your blood pressure. This is all a study by Craig Hanley about the massive amount of impacts that we do just being away from each other. And the nature of that is just based on the science of we have evolved so much that we have learned to need each other for regulation, for understanding that what I'm seeing is what you're seeing, to feel validated, to feel seen, to feel sane, but also to know that I'm going to survive. Your blood pressure will increase in solitary confinement because your body is in a threat state of this is all on me and I don't have anybody to look at my back if something's going to attack me. Again, our brain makes way more sense if we're running around in caves. Right. So the real reality is we are a group society and groups are how we understand ourselves and how we continue to thrive and survive. And this is all in relation to to one of the reasons we ended up in a group society is the need for daycare. As I previously mentioned, we had to be dependent on each other for survival to continue. So an absolutely important piece was being able to connect enough to one another to trust one another that I can hand you my infant and know that you're going to take care of it as well as I do. So within groups, not only do we have a dependence, but we have a desire to connect and trust enough so we know survival is possible. But now a lot of what we need to talk about when we talk about empathy is stress. Yeah, you can't have one without the other. Yes, because empathy will require stress, but it also will significantly decrease. And sometimes they're very much at odds for one another. Ooh, interesting. So 
One of the things that evolution gave us, if you will, uh, one of the things that we have as a byproduct of it that gives us the ability to connect to one another is a chemical called oxytocin. Mm. Oxytocin has made somewhat of the more popular news. It's often called the love hormone. Yes. Thank you. And it is a chemical that's released in your body that doesn't really seem to have any other effects except that it teaches us that connection and touch and somebody else is pleasurable. So it is not by nature sexual. We have a lot of oxytocin between parent and child, but we also do have oxytocin during orgasm. And the reason why we have this is because this chemical is about touch and positive associations with another person are positive. This all started because of a study on prairie voles versus mountain voles. Interesting. Okay, Um, first of all, what the heck are those? (laughs) So voles are tiny little rodents. Okay, okay. Um, They look like mice with, I think, even bigger ears. Okay, I'm from Kansas. Is that what we call like prairie dogs? No. Different. Okay. Voles look a lot more like mice. Okay, thank you. Uh, They're really good for basically chewing on tree roots and kind of ripping up your garden. Oh, okay. (laughs) Um, But there are different voles. There are voles that occur more in mountains and voles that occur more in prairies. Okay. There was a biologist, Lowell, who was a professor at the University of Illinois. And in the early 1970s, he noticed that some voles kept turning up together in his trap. And he found this really interesting and he wanted to know why. So what he discovered when he started studying these voles is that prairie voles specifically would end up together and mountain voles would not and actually most rodents don't it's not a common behavior for rodents so he was curious if this was the case why and he started to specifically study prairie voles versus mountain voles and one of the things he found was that prairie voles are high nurturing parents specifically they're called high licking mothers because rodents they also do more eye contact arched back nursing to be able to give eye contact while their child is nursing they are much more attuned to children and that includes both parents specifically parents have a tendency to stick together and are with each other throughout most of the course of their life whereas in mountain voles this is not the case both the low levels of nurturing and the low levels of monogamy This is not a judgment on monogamy in any way, shape, or form. This is just a scientific discussion of what we see as a byproduct. Within that, one of the things that he started to, he started to question why this was so different. And he found a chemical that is higher in prairie voles than it was in mountain voles, and that is oxytocin. Wild. And that's where we started to get a higher understanding of what oxytocin is and what happens when you have more of it. And essentially, it boils down to if you had a lot of nurturing in your infancy and childhood, you are therefore more likely to have high levels of oxytocin. This can also be built up through other things, but that's a starting foundation. If you have high levels of oxytocin, you are more likely to end up in a connection with one person because you start to realize that people equal pleasure and specifically will start to attune you to one person. And that because people equal pleasure, you're more likely to nurture your mate as well as your children. With male species, this does require the chemical vasopressin as well. Vasopressin and oxytocin are needed in males to form the same sort of connection. Interesting. Oxytocin for mammals will do a great deal of things, including honestly a high level of distress if you are away from one another. And this is what keeps us together and keeps us in relationships. Mm. And this is one of the reasons why if you're in pain, somebody giving you a sense of touch, specifically if it's somebody you're already connected to, will decrease your own levels of pain. Because oxytocin will soothe a lot of that even though it is not an opiate in and of itself. 
during a lot of those kind of touches, opiates are released naturally in your brain. And we can actually, for mammals who are in an intense amount of pain, for example, lab rats, we've, we've given them opiates to decrease when they're feeling withdrawal from oxytocin. They are not the same thing in any way, shape, or form, but it helps to soothe it which is going to reconnect us to a risk of low levels of empathy, means a risk of low levels of oxytocin, which means an increased risk of drug use. Wow. Your brain needs those chemicals somewhere. Holy smokes. So you're literally telling me that if if someone is maybe missing the nurture aspect from when they were raised, or if there was some sort of incident that really dropped those levels, that they would be more likely to do drugs. Yes. Wow. And alcohol and other things that will essentially soothe us because we don't have a natural chemical component that's soothing us. Makes a lot of sense. So a key component of oxytocin that's important is that it does counteract stress. But stress, high levels of stress, when we can't counteract it, will decrease empathy. So let's talk for a moment on stress and what stress does to empathy. Understanding stress and empathy makes a very clear connection to why all of this is critical to human survival. We know, as we discussed even just previously, stress is a key component to survival. The stress response system specifically. Something attacks me and I, my whole body changes. My brain sends signals to my heart rate, my digestion, my blood pressure, telling me to flee or fight so I have the ability to continue to survive. So our stress response system is incredibly important. It does the things that we do so that we could continue to survive as well. That being said, as we discussed, we evolved faster than our brains did. So our modern life situations of stress do not require our digestive system to shut down. They do not require our heart rate necessarily to always increase. So our daily stress systems, our, our taxes being due, our bills being behind, our chemistry tests, and sometimes they're each other. And if specifically if you're living with a violent parent, you're living with a bear. But the difference is you don't have the ability to run away from the bear or kill the bear. So our stress system, specifically if we don't have the way to properly regulate it, will live in a heightened state of trying to prepare us to either run away or to flee in a way that we cannot. And this is where we see the body taking on things like consistent high blood pressure. Because you need high blood pressure when you're actively at threat so that your body can get more blood to your muscles so that you can run away or so you can fight. But what we're actually seeing is chronic high blood pressure because instead of a bear, we have taxes and bills and chemistry tests. So we see a huge impact on our day-to-day living, both mentally and physically, when because of our stress response system. So loud noises, strange faces, deadlines, all of those create a natural amount of tension. And our stress response is always set to default, which means we're, we're trying to respond as though it's supposed to be a short burst activity. And we're one and done. And that's not the world that we're living in nowadays, which is why we're seeing an increase of things we don't see in other mammals. We don't we don't see the same sort of illnesses physically and mentally in other mammals as we do in humans. And this is largely in relation to our inability to evolve our stress response and how we manage our stress response. Wow. We have to be set up for survival. Empathy is a key component to being able to do that. Let's just even talk field mice, right? Field mice. If field mice have access to a high nurturing mother, they're more likely to be empathetic. They are generally more likely to let humans hold them. They're more connected intersocially and they do more as a community. 
Field mice that don't have a high-liking mother means that usually that mother is given birth to babies in an area of high threat. I don't have the ability to nurture you because there's a greater risk of things about to kill me. And so babies have a lower amount of empathy, but it also means they have a more activated stress response. This is important when you're living in an open field and there's not a lot of things to help you and there are threats everywhere. You need to naturally evolve to a place where you can be able to respond quickly to threat. That's something that, for example, prairie voles have less of because they operate more in groups. So the more amount of empathy we have, the more ability we have to regulate our own stress, the less damage to our health that we have, the more ability we have to think creatively, intelligently, build new things. But if we're in a constant stress environment, we're attuning more of our needs to a stress situation. So we're more at attack and threat and violence, aggression, survival. We change our whole system to either be focused on thrive or survive. I'm experiencing so many, dare I quote our podcast title, brain-blowing moments right now. It's like understanding, just hearing you talking about just simply high blood pressure in general and how stress actually shows up in our bodies and also going back to how those two things aren't separate. This is proof why stress is not just something to push under the rug. It's also incredible to think about how empathy is almost like the medicine for stress sometimes. Absolutely and, can be, yeah. And like that's, it's just, it's just unbelievable. Because the more we focus on something and the more we have knowledge of it, the more we can gear ourselves to being on thrive and not survive if we can help calm down our regulatory system to not be on a stress situation. So yes, the more we increase empathy within ourselves, the healthier we are. The more we increase empathy within our community, the healthier our community, our country, our world. It's not just about the kind of happy-go-lucky sunshine and rainbows taking care of each other, caring about one another. It is literally about not dying from a heart attack. Yeah. Because essentially our bodies were never in any way, shape, or form meant to be on survive all the time. There are cases where our media has really made a play of the, the interdependence and the mass fighter. But the real reality is if you are in constant threat space, you have a constant amount of high blood pressure. Your veins were not created for that. That's what leads to hardened and clogged arteries because they're getting far more traction than they were ever meant to. It's sort of like if you drove your car at 120 miles per hour the entire time, your car would not last as long. Not only just because of the miles you'd accrue to it, but the amount of damage that would occur within a shorter period of time. Living in a stressful response situation is fine and it is good and it is okay in short bursts. Mm. I'm a complete nutter nerd. So for example, the Enterprise on Star Trek does not travel at warp nine all the time for a very, very good reason. It's short bursts. Short bursts are fine. And then we have the ability to regulate, to travel more at like warp three, to travel calmly about the world, explore it, to learn from it, to not be in a constant state of survival, to also be in a state of thriving. So this is the difference between things like empathy and stress. Now, this gets way more interesting when we also combine that with the fact that we are not just individuals we operate with a need to be in groups. So that brings us into a kind of an interesting thing of our own evolution, which is we have an evolution of stress, we have an evolution of empathy, and we have an evolution of being in groups. Why do you follow a leader? 
why did you follow the captain of the basketball team? Why did you follow your boss? Why do you follow an elected president? Why do you follow through with some aspect of law enforcement? Why do we follow leaders and authority? Mm. We follow leaders and authority because we are meant to operate in groups. And our evolution has created in our systems to be able to operate better in groups. So one of the things that really can affect us is how we are when there is a stressful situation in terms of groups. If you've ever been in a real serious situation in a group setting, most people will tell you that they were surprised at kind of how calm they were. It's almost like everything goes quiet. That's because we're kind of always set up because we evolved from tribes to be able to identify who is in charge and follow their lead. Stress in a large group setting will na make us naturally compliant. It makes us naturally compliant because we have to be in groups to survive. But in a group, we have to survive. We have to operate as though we're one being. So we follow a leader and we find a kind of calmness for that. If you're in like a, an earthquake, for example, you're going to lose precious time if you're trying to determine who's in charge and you're all running in different directions. Although that can happen, it is the rarity. It is an exception. It is not what commonly happens. What commonly happens when you experience something is you immediately look to somebody else. Are you seeing this as well? Do you know what to do? Are you moving towards the exits? We will become a little bit almost like the colloquial lemmings because we do better as a group of us. Mm. And we are in a stress response. We want to immediately say, okay, somebody, if somebody is in charge, let's follow that person. And, and that's partially because our own evolution will make us naturally more docile when there's a high level of leadership. Wow, that makes me think about riding like what seat you choose on a plane so much differently because literally if you're choosing to sit in the emergency exit and you get that whole like spiel from the flight attendant to make sure you understand what's going on what they're essentially saying is hey when it goes down you are the leader absolutely wow so interesting. And there are times where you will absolutely move into a leadership role. Throughout the course of your day, week, year, you can absolutely, we have a tendency as humans to have an understanding of a power differentiation. We want to know who's in charge. Am I in charge? Are you in charge? We'll actually specifically see this. Somebody who worked in a day treatment with kids with very explosive behaviors one of the things that we saw was that these children would be experiencing sort of high levels of stress. They'd work against authority. And it's because in their home, they might not have had an authority figure. The authority mm. figure might have been, been too sick, been too busy, working too many jobs, been using chemicals. And so these kids would spin a lot more because they were so used to having to sort of be the adults. And so that will, will naturally impact them and impact their behavior. So all of us, even from a young age, are trying to determine, do you have my back? Are you in charge? Will you take care of me? Are you safe? And if you are, then I can relax a little more. This is sadly one of the reasons why people wearing uniforms, especially when they may not have meant to wear that uniform, will use them to take advantage of other people because we're naturally compliant when we see somebody in charge. It is, it is, and I say we, not an individual listener, you might be like, I'm not naturally compliant. You have a response system that activates that can make you more compliant as a human. Specifically, it can if there's a lot of stressors over time. And so this is a very interesting thing when we think about cults. Because I think a lot of us have heard about cults' existence. 
and thought, what is wrong with people? Like, how could they have ended up in a cult? Why did you drink poisonous Kool-Aid while wearing white shoes when somebody told you to? Like, what would cause a person to do that? And we can't empathize and we can't relate, right? And the reality is, is that happened because you had a leader who was very aware that activating stress over and over and over again caused people to consistently look to leadership and caused them to feel more dependent on leadership. And doing so allowed them to abuse such leadership. Holy smokes. I'm sure any listeners are in the same boat, but there are definitely a handful of leaders that I'm thinking of right now that absolutely did that. And the truth of the matter is, is we've had that all throughout the course of human history. We've noticed that as groups, we do exceptionally well when we have very empathetic, very caring leaders who do care about us as a society. If we have leaders who are more, for example, like a cult leader, who's in it more for their own personal gain, we will still comply with all of that. We will still absolutely fall into it because it's safety. There's safety in numbers. There is safety in groups. There is safety in connection. We will gravitate very, very, very hard down to the shoes you are wearing with an us-them perspective. And it is a natural stress soother for us. And what can happen is a group in stress can actually have great amounts of harm, including but not limiting to being able to have a group leader who can convince you to take your own life or take the life of somebody else. Holy smokes. So our compliance can be powerful and it can be harmful. We also have a really difficult component, which has been kind of coined learned helplessness. So a University of Pennsylvania research psychologist, Martin Seelgeman, and his colleagues were starting to study learning in dogs and how to associate a sound being made with a uh, shock. So there were dogs that could escape a shock if they pushed a lever. So they heard a sound, they knew that a shock was coming, and they pushed a lever so that they wouldn't experience that shock. There were also dogs that were yoked to these dogs experiencing that said shock that were just living with the determination of whatever the aforementioned dog did or did not do. And then they went and shifted that study to the same dogs. And what, one of the things they realized is the dogs who did not have control of that lever were just yoked. Those were in far worse f- for wear. They did so much worse than the dogs who had access to the lever, regardless if the lever was pushed or not. And so what they also then took these, they took these same dogs and tried to teach them that uh, if there was a sound, they could jump over low fences to escape um, when the bell made noise so that they wouldn't get shocked. And the dogs who had access to the lever would absolutely control it. They would jump over, no big deal. The dogs who had been yoked, the ones who were powerless to experience the shock or not experience it, would just lay there and whimper and would just get the shock all the time which really confused um, researchers. They were really surprised by that. They thought that all dogs would start to realize this sound meant that a shock was coming and to do whatever they could to get away from it because that just makes sense. And instead they saw something completely different, which is what they coined learned helplessness, which is essentially you have an elevated stress response that has learned that I, I am sort of powerless and it causes you to therefore be powerless to just lie down and take it. Because this is actually also a part of natural mammals. Not only do we have fight, flight, but we also have something called freeze, which is I can't escape this. I can't fight it. I can't flee from it. I just have to survive it. So that's why these dogs just 
lied there and took the shock that was given to them. A real factor to stress is that stress in and of itself is actually not harmful. As we've discussed, short bursts of it are good. And in fact, as a human, you can't actually learn without being in a little bit of a stress space. But it is about a comfortable stress space versus an uncomfortable stress. This is why we have positive stress and negative stress, Mm. essentially. Not all stress is bad stress. But stress that is completely out of your control is bad stress. So this is why operating in groups can potentially have an even greater level of harm. Because not only will I just comply with whatever the leader is doing because I don't have control of it, I develop evolutionary-wise what we've coined learned helplessness, but it also causes more damage to me as somebody who is essentially laying there and taking the shock. Not only am I getting that shock and not fighting it, but it's also doing more damage to me when I experience it. This empathy helps put the brakes on that kind of fear and threat. The more we practice empathy, the more we engage in empathy, the more we learn how to regulate our own stress, the more health and benefits we get from it. And this brings us into a healthier place. So we have the capacity to counteract this, but not if we're not conscious of it or why it matters. Wow. I did not expect to hit so many unbelievable points in this episode. It is a very fascinating topic in a way that I wasn't expecting it to be. <laughs> Truly. Be honest. So we've kind of gone through the evolution of our species, which creates then the evolution of our own brain. This is going to kind of maybe be a repeated thing in this podcast because understanding why we are who we are, we have to figure out how we got here. And we've discussed how stress can impact us and how it impacts us within groups. So the thing to focus on is is the fact that there is a reality that we do need each other and there is a real need to continue to survive with one another. So it's important to realize that our, our human brain has the remarkable capacity, I'm going to directly quote Bruce Perry here, to learn, discover, create, and invent in a remarkable way to pass a discoveries of evolution throughout time to that next generation. There's so much that we're carrying with us. That what's literally what we're discussing when we t- discuss things like oxytocin and mirroring neurons and our how we are in stressful situations and groups. We're carrying histories with us as we move forward. And so a question is also about how we live together, how we work together, how we raise our children, and how we govern ourselves and how we move this forward. So a piece within that is, if we're talking about stress in groups, we also need to talk about empathy in groups. And this can also be called altruism. So some of you may have heard of something called the prisoner's dilemma. And this is game theory. So Sharis, let's say you and I uh, were arrested. Okay. And we're arrested. And if we don't talk, both of us, if we both don't talk, they're going to end up letting us go because they don't have enough evidence to do anything. But... Those in charge say, you know, Sheriff, if you tell us what's going on, we're going to cut you a deal and you're going to serve less time and Lane's going to get the bulk of it. And they're going to say the same thing to me. If we both talk, we both are going to serve time. Let's be clear. But if one of us talks first, one of us could potentially get that deal, right? If I trust you, it just makes sense for us to both stay quiet. But if I don't trust you or if I don't care if you serve time, it makes sense for me to speak up as fast as possible. Wow. Yeah. Because, you know, the next 10 years of my life might be absolutely dependent on did you talk or did you not? Can I trust you not to talk, right? And so one of the things that we would have thought, and we absolutely have thought, is that clearly all of us to survive would just talk. Why would I risk it on you not talking? 
yeah, it's back to like the survival of the fittest kind of deal mm-hmm. of no, why would I care? I'm just going to save myself in this in this scenario. Exactly. And so that's a, that's a real key factor is it just makes sense to talk. Um, and yet that's not what we do. Because the reality is that makes sense only if we play this game once. Mm. If we play this game more than once, your talking will cause harm to you. Because then I'm clearly going to talk. And you can therefore not be trusted. So a lot of the times I've actually gotten in debates with people on are we by nature altruistic? And the reality is we have a societal benefit of being altruistic, which is that you can trust me and I can trust you. And this means we can depend on each other, which we know is absolutely crucial to survival. That is not to say clearly that there aren't people who are not altruistic. And it's not to say that we clearly don't want to have ramifications to those who are not altruistic. We want to be able to show you can't cheat and get away with it, right? Mm. So we come up with natural strategies to that. But altruism can survive in a population because we realize that there are benefits to it. If you do well, then I do well, and we can do well together. So there's a real reality to learning how to have the ability to be interconnected with one another so that we we learn to depend on one another. And we see these in a specific type of bat where there are lots of bats who will absolutely take care of each other when it doesn't benefit them in any way, shape, or form. But if there's one bat that's consistently not contributing, they will stop contributing to that bat. This is an example of for our group dynamics. We want to do well together, but we get conscious and concerned by those who are not contributing and those who are cheating from us. Interestingly enough, and we'll go into this, we oftentimes get more bogged down by trying to punish those than we actually benefit from from just essentially kind of kind of doing a more general approach. And we do actually far better with positive rewards. We see this, for example, in aspects of climate change. In climate change, it would clearly make more sense if we could just, you know, do things very cheaply regardless of the outcomes. And so there are lots of countries who would want to do that. When we looked at punishments for that, and what we actually see goes far better is if we do rewards, because by nature, we respond better to rewards. And we learn more from rewards. Disciplinary actions towards us will have an effect, but up and only to a point. Mm, yeah, I've done too much. It's you almost become accustomed to them. Exactly. Very interesting. Because our body has the ability to naturally shut down pain after up into a point that's sort of that same learn helplessness. I just have to lie here and take it. So punishment is only effective in small, itty bitty, tiny doses and rewards are consistently far more effective, partially because as we discussed before, when we're in a happy, calm state, we have the ability to learn and to remember. So we always want to lean towards rewards because we're able to be in a space of learning and remembering and it promotes us to move forward. This is why rewards work better than punishment. And this is true as well with altruism. This is also all connected to what do we do to help keep us in a happy or healthier state of being so that we survive together and we thrive together. Mm. So I think this is where we end it for this episode because this was a lot to cover, but it's only the first half because the second half is the real components of why does all of this matter? We're kind of hinting at we all survive and thrive together, but what does this look like on a day-to-day basis? What does this look like presently in 2022? And if these things are not present, if this all matters and we're losing empathy as I'm proposing as a hypothesis, what does that mean for our future, both individually and as a society? And is there anything we can do about it? And I think that's our teaser for the next episode. Brilliant. 
Thank you so much, Lane, for all of that. I seriously feel like I've been so much quieter in this episode than I intended to be because I've been sitting in a state of brilliant shock and it has been wonderful and I am so excited to hear about it moving forward. I guess we look forward to Empathy episode two. We'll talk to you then. Take care. Thanks for listening to the Brain Blown Podcast. To learn more, head over to brainblownpodcast.com for script notes, visuals, and any resources we mentioned. And hey, if you have any topics you're curious about or want to learn more on, we'd love to hear about it. Send us an email or reach out via social media to get started. You can find our information and more at www.brainblownpodcast.com.